0: She sang, Beyond the Genius of the Sea. The makers raged toward order words of the sea, words of the fragrant portals, dimly starred, and of ourselves and of our origins, in ghostlier demarcations, Hello, my name's Darren, and this is the Maker's Rage podcast. Inspiration. What is it? Where does it come from? Is it some external force, like a bolt of lightning striking us out of the blue? Or does it come from within? something that bubbles up from the unconscious, that mystical well that is the source of dreams and neuroses, a part of ourselves over which we seem to lack agency, at least if you believe those great mythmakers makers of the 20th century, Freud and Jung, whose conclusions we're now somewhat sceptical of, but his influence is nonetheless pervasive, lasting, impactful whose teachings, whose writings are still taught in the humanities at least, if not the sciences, whose jargon is still in the popular consciousness. When we speak of the ego, the id, archetypes, denial, repression, defense mechanisms, the Oedipus complex, shadow personalities, the collective unconscious, etc., we hearken back to them, even if we don't know it the attempt to interpret dreams in a scientifically rigorous fashion so that it's the province no longer of the shaman, but the psychiatrist. And many of us today still entertain the notion that dreams are sources of inspiration, that they reveal something arcane, something hidden about ourselves, or about which we're not fully conscious, because our dreams often surprise us, make us happy, sad, terrorise us, so that, if they are indeed sources of inspiration, can we truly take credit for them? Plato expelled the poets or rhapsodes from his republic because he deemed them irrational, because they seemed to go into a frenzy as they delivered their incantations, their recitations, they seemed to lose themselves, become ecstatic. And ecstasy itself, the word literally means standing outside oneself. And Plato taught this can't be a way to access philosophical truth. It leads to superstition and mysticism, to fanaticism, and most dangerous of all, relativism. What is ambiguous, nuanced, what allows for multiple interpretations, cannot be true. What springs from improvisation, wordplay and intoxicating music isn't philosophy. It's dangerous. It can lead to immorality. The truth Plato sought exists only in the light of day, in the light of reason. It can be seen from all sides for what it is, and that which is unclear can be deduced. There are no surprises in Plato's Republic, nothing hidden behind a cloak of ambiguity. What is already known to be true is fully disclosed. What is as yet unclear is wholly discoverable. It's no accident, truth, or Aletheia is so often personified as a beautiful, naked goddess. Incidentally the word rhapsode comes from the Greek and it means to sew or stitch songs together, as in a tapestry. And rhapsodes weren't just standing around droning out poems by Homer or Hesiod or Sappho and we certainly shouldn't imagine a poetry reading down at the local bookshop. These guys were more like rock stars or rappers. And I'd like to imagine two-and-a-half thousand years ago rhapsodes referring to themselves hypocoristically as rappers. The point is they whipped themselves up into a frenzy in their performance and the audience with them. They seemed demonic in the traditional sense, inspired from without by morally ambiguous spirits, much like Homer invoking Calliope, the muse of epic poetry to help him tell the story of Achilles' baneful wrath, many n'aietet Or much later, Milton, invoking the Holy Spirit's aid to his adventurous song, that with no middle flight, intends to soar above the Aeonian mount, in other words, to outdo his Greek and Roman precursors. Or more recently still, Buck Mulligan, in Joyce's Ulysses, lifting up his mirror and razor in mockery of the mass, before asking the Holy Spirit to switch off the current. Joyce, of course, in his tongue-in-cheek way, implying perhaps that, unlike Milton, he doesn't need the Holy Spirit's assistance. He may have secretly agreed that if one claims the inspiration comes from outside, from some muse or spirit, a demon, the gods, then one can't really take credit for it. One can only claim to be favoured of the gods, But the idea for the work, and the work itself, isn't fully your own. You're merely a channel or conduit, like a conductor of electricity. Switch off the current now. There is a good chap. No need to inconvenience yourself. I've got this. The suggestion that the Holy Spirit is some celestial telegraph operator is both funny and profane, which is typical of Joyce, of course. But in 1904, when Ulysses is set, the light bulb itself was a relatively young invention, and a powerful symbol indeed it was in the 20th century of our ability to harness the forces of nature, like Prometheus stealing fire from the heavens, until the symbol becomes so familiar and commonplace that inspiration is just a light bulb turning on above Bugs Bunny's head, implying that the idea for its invention came to Edison as suddenly as the flick of a switch, and with the least possible reflection, and that it wasn't the result of a long process, a long arduous process of trial and error, of mostly failure, and that it was a completely solitary act, that he had no predecessors, no mentors, no collaborators, no investors, and no equally competent rivals, but that the idea came to him and him alone, suddenly, like a bolt of lightning or like a light bulb switching on, and that he went on to bestride the world like a colossus. The myth of the genius revolts at the idea of collaboration, and even though Edison himself said geniuses 99% perspiration, the implication perhaps was that the perspiration was all his, yet the famous remark is often cited as proof out of the horse's mouth that inspiration doesn't come like a bolt out of the blue, that there is always a long foregrounding, and that there is nothing great that cannot be achieved by hard work. Many in Edison's time would have agreed that it is the Protestant work ethic that creates men of genius, not the gods, not demons or spirits, not the flick of a switch. A genius is made, not born. Great ideas are earned, not gifted. But then what about the claim of so many throughout history that their ideas came to them in dreams? And far from being collaborative, dreaming is an intensely private act. No one else can dream our dreams, at least not yet. And if or when we choose to share them, we always redact, veil, conceal what might expose too much, even incriminate us, unless they inspire us, in which case we take full credit for them dismissing the rest as, I suppose, undigested cheese. Take the example of Friedrich August Kekule, a 19th century German chemist who famously discovered the structure of benzene, which had far-reaching implications on pure and applied chemistry. In 1890, at the 25th anniversary of the paper's publication, he told a somewhat fanciful story of the theory's creation, claiming that the ring shape of the benzene molecule Was conceived in a daydream when he was lying on the grass, imagining a serpent biting its own tail. We've all seen this symbol somewhere. The ancient Greeks called it an ouroboros, which means literally tail eater. The anecdote may or may not be true. I tend to be skeptical, but of course, similar claims of inspiration from dreams or reveries have been told across cultures since, well, time immemorial. Scientists, poets, painters, shamans and religious figures who claim they fell asleep and then woke up with complicated theory or composition or idea fully formed, and all they had to do was transcribe it. Paul McCartney, for instance, often repeats a story of how the melody for yesterday came to him in a dream. And I don't tend to disbelieve him. I think melodies can occur to one in dreams, the idea or germ for what will Ultimately become a fully realized creative act, a song, a novel, a great scientific theory or paper. I don't think special relativity came to Einstein in a dream fully formed, and all he had to do was remember everything he saw in the dream, each equation fully worked out, etc. As if dreams are that pellucid, that clear, eidetic. as soon as we awaken we start forgetting our dreams and an hour or two later we mostly forget them completely. But I suppose for a melody like yesterday, which on its face is simple, inevitable, and yet it had never been written before, and there's something about its simplicity, its inevitability, its beauty, its familiarity that made Paul think perhaps this was a song that had already existed. I suppose it was a case of imposter syndrome. He didn't believe a song so good had never existed before, but of course it hadn't. No one recognized it, everyone liked it, and it has since become the most covered song in the 20th century, I believe. The claim that an idea forced the court to one in a dream is both modest and mischievous. It preserves the artist from having to explain the creative process in too much detail by pointing to something as yet inexplicable, even mystical, the dream, the unconscious. It's no wonder artists, musicians, writers, etc. repeatedly claim their ideas are not fully their own, and that some external force or being or spirit breathed it into them. It's a version of the modesty topos, a rhetorical device for downplaying one's talents while at the same time flaunting them, as someone who says they're terrible at public speaking for example, before giving a speech that prompts a standing ovation, and the act all surprised as if they were unaware that, until that very moment, they could deliver a great oration. But it's important to remember, as the applause washes over them, that the gods both give it and take it away. The ability to speak or sing or write in a way that makes the public stand and applaud is a supernatural afflatus. The work of inspired genius is a gift from the gods and the artist a mere vessel or conduit but the gods nonetheless chose him or her as their vessel or conduit, a calling they humbly accepted. The word inspiration also means, of course, the intake of breath. Expiration not only means its opposite or release, but its final release at death. To inspire, therefore, is to give life, whereas at death, the pneuma, Greek for breath, makes its final exit through the nose and mouth. The ancient Egyptians dedicated a ritual to the process, the opening of the mouth, and this poignantly illustrates the means by which the soul, or anima, departs the body for the afterlife. Of course, the ritual is made more macabre when we discover it was literally done as part of the mummification process. The Book of the Dead has a passage that reads like a poet answering a call. My mouth is given to me. My mouth is opened by patah. With that chisel of metal with which he opened the mouths of the gods. Pata is the patron saint of craftsmen, cognate with the Greek Hephaestus or Roman Vulcan, more a divine blacksmith than a poet, and yet what's left after he applies his metal chisel, a vessel emptied of what animated it from birth. For we don't only exhale to breathe or sing songs or recite poetry. When a dog barks, it exhales. It is the mechanism by which birds sing, by which loud and obnoxious people are loud and obnoxious. Language, said W. H. Gass, in the sentence seeks its form, is born in the lungs, and is shaped by the lips, palate, teeth, and tongue out of spent breath. Spent breath. But not necessarily wasted. O Lord, says the psalmist, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. And of course, when we think of inspiration, it's usually the artistic kind, the religious kind, the scientific kind. We don't like to think that businessmen and women are truly creative, that lawyers and judges cavort with the muses. But of course, creativity is manifested in every walk of life, including the business world, in politics, in ordinary human interaction. When does it need to commune with the gods to be inspired? When does it need to be among those who, to quote Stephen Spender, From the womb remember the soul's history through corridors of light, Where the hours are suns, endless and singing? Inspiration can come by slipping on a banana skin and landing on a pot of gold. It can come while lying on the grass which our eyes closed, Daydreaming as Kekulé claimed or by turning around and asking your colleague, friend or family member a question. When restrictions began to lift in Ireland, I met my colleagues for the first time in two years and got to know them better than I had in those two years. Because in the pub, which is where we met over a pint, we were able to interact in a freely associative way, in a less inhibited way, because our managers weren't there monitoring in the calls. We could speak about things other than what's on the meeting agenda and we could bounce ideas off each other, whether they related to work or not, almost in the way information percolates between areas of the brain's cortex. The cognitive neuroscientist Mark young Beeman and his colleagues at Northwestern University looked at brain activity when people solved association problems. And they distinguish between taking an exhaustive route towards the solution and having an instant breakthrough. Beeman says, quote, a network of brain regions becomes more active when people solve with sudden insight compared to when they solve analytically. So it looks like the combination of brain areas allows people to accumulate activity from several weak connections so that the quote unquote full picture gradually strengthens, but notably, as it strengthens, it remains below the consciousness threshold. Beeman explains, eventually this activation is detected, and some processes can help people switch attention to it, allowing the idea to emerge into consciousness, but it emerges as a whole, hence the strong sense of confidence, you just know the answer's right and that it connects all parts of the problem. Furthermore Beeman suspects that people, individuals, are likely to vary in their tendency to solve either analytically or more creatively by insight, but they can also vary periodically depending on their mood, and of course the effect of mood on our cognitive processes and our behaviour can't be understated and I will certainly dedicate a future episode on the relationship between mood disorders and creativity. Anxiety narrows attention, Beeman says, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. And a narrowing of one's attention, one's focus, can be useful, especially for analytic problem solving. But the research suggests narrower attention may suppress or ignore the weak activations that are necessary to solve creatively or with insight. On the other hand, a positive mood can help insight. In positive mood, attention is relaxed, Beeman says, and people can detect and switch to weaker associations, which potentially lead to a solution. And regarding the association problems during which the brain activity was observed, Beeman states, people in a positive mood solve more of our problems overall, but specifically solve more by insight. And he adds, for intellectually rich productivity to occur, you need other individuals to interact with, and to be able to bounce ideas off. So, in short, the moment of sudden insight when it occurs may appear sudden, though it has in fact been incubating in the mind for some time unbeknownst. And moreover, while it's happening in the unconscious, the incubation process is only enriched by the input of other minds. Einstein, who'd spent ten years thinking about a generalized version of his special theory of relativity that incorporates gravity, need only walk down the street and see a painter falling off a ladder, and all of a sudden comes the realization, which he claimed he had in 1907, that when a person falls they do not feel their own weight, and that is equivalent to free fall in space. It would take years for him to formalise his theory, but in that moment, for him, the way seemed clear. Or more recently, the Beatles' road manager, Mal Evans, need only turn to Paul McCartney and ask him to pass the Salt and Pepper, which Paul said he misheard as Sergeant Pepper. A funny little character. Perhaps it has potential, something to bounce off the other members of the group." Thank you for listening By the way In case you're interested There is a Makers Rage Facebook and Instagram page So feel free To share your feedback Positive or negative It's all appreciated As for upcoming episodes I'm aiming to release A new one At the start of each month But I may do Some unscripted Q&A's in between You definitely won't agree With everything I say And I do like A back and forth Anyway, I hope you join me for the next one.